From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is What's Next Producers Picks, highlights from a conversation heard on a previous episode. On today's show... You don't have to identify with the white rage to be able to see that it exists. Mm. So, like, we're all living in a system that was created by this rage to keep uh, black people specifically out of key positions, you know, uh, to limit education, to limit our workforce participation. We hear from Stephanie Pete, Will Green, and Rob Latest, who all appeared on a recent panel themed around Carol Anderson's book, White Rage. The event was moderated by Green, the Director of Outreach and Community Engagement at the University at Buffalo's Graduate School. Pete is Say Yes Buffalo's Workforce Development Director, and Latest is the Business Intelligence and Workforce Manager at Invest Buffalo Niagara. Both appeared as panelists, along with professionals in law, mental health, and other fields. We'll hear a bit from that discussion, as well as some context around the larger conversations that led to it. I'm Patrick Hoskin. Thanks for listening. We start with Jay Moran sitting down with Pete, Green, and Latest to preview the event. The four discuss how systemic inequality impacts education, professional development, and labor and workforce needs here in Buffalo. Stephanie, Pete with us. Um, and Stephanie, we'll talk with you first and foremost as the uh, Director of uh, Workforce Development at Say Yes and also uh, the person who's organizing this, uh, this panel discussion. Let's start with the title. The title of the panel discussion, it's very, it's, it's got quite the name to it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're talking about the book White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide um, by Carol Anderson. And the panel discussion is really focusing on the organized uh, uh, resistance to black progress. And we're looking at it through the lens of workforce development and education. And uh, you also have opened this up to the public, of course, whoever wants to attend. There's probably an opportunity we can maybe talk about that later in the program. But but the key part of it is what you're talking about, workforce development, is Mm -hmm. getting some of the main employers in western New York in the room to talk about this. Connect the dots a little bit there, uh, you know, because I think – in some ways, you know, just the, the term white rage and the name of the, the book might stand out on its own. And it might be, a, 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 obviously, you know why you went about doing this. So connect the, the dots there a little bit for us. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I recommended this book on LinkedIn a few months ago and people started reading it and requested a discussion. So we decided to plan it. Um, we're focusing on this book because... Uh, I think the the term white rage or the title white rage elicits like this, we talked about before, this imagery of violence mm-hmm. and something that you can visually see. But uh, as Carol Anderson explores in this book, it's really about how those feelings were channeled into legislation and policy. So when we look at Buffalo and see the segregation, we know the economic in, um, inequity in our community, that is a remnant of, you know, of the laws and the policies that were happening nationally and that were funneled locally. So what we want to do is bring employers together to, one, talk about the book, um, explore the local local data, but also talk about, okay, so what can we do differently in our seats? We don't have to wait on anyone. We can come together as employers, as workforce trainers, as philanthropy, um, as business leaders. What can we do um, to come together and actually change what – uh, this looks like in our community for young people and their families and our general community. Also with us, uh, we were going to have the moderator of the event, uh, Will Green, uh, who is uh, from uh, Tremor, uh, Tremonte Solutions and also now the assistant dean 
uh, at uh, the University of Buffalo uh, for, um, I'll let you give the whole title here, Will. The whole <laughs> title is because it's brand new, right? Yeah, brand new. Uh, what's the title again? Your new title? Assistant, Assistant Dean. Dean for Outreach and Community Engagement Outreach. at the Graduate School of Education. Congratulations on the on the Thank new you. position, for sure. Thank you. And also with us, we have uh, Rob Latest from Invest Buffalo Niagara with their uh, Business Intelligence and Workforce Manager. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Thank you for welcoming me. All right, so let's let's expand the conversation here. Then first, um, let's go to Rob. Rob, our, from a, a workforce development workforce uh, development perspective, what's how do you see this panel discussion working here in terms of what you, you think employers might get from this? Well, a couple of years ago, we did a labor market assessment for the eight-county Buffalo-Niagara region, incorporated feedback from 150 stakeholders. We brought in a global national consultant, uh, Newmark, to lead the study for us because of their data capabilities, but also their intel with industry needs, as we're seeing a lot of growth in manufacturing and other emerging industries. And we wanted to see what our gaps were for being able to match our local talent with what these new opportunities are going to look like. After doing the study, they identified 20 occupations that they've identified as being key for our region's growth. When you take a look at the demographic profile of those occupations, only one is close to the regional demographic makeup of our region for our black and African-American population, and only a couple for our Hispanic population. So right now, the current paradigm is we do not have the representation within these key occupations that are going to determine whether or not our region can land opportunities, but then also our vitality moving forward. Uh, well, you said there was just one uh, for the black demographic. What was that? Truck drivers. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, that's uh, interesting to know. So, so there's a lot of room for growth in this regard, and, and this is where we have to get everybody in the same room. Will, you're going to have to moderate this these d- different uh, panelists here as well give me some of your thoughts about this you know going in it's still a couple of weeks off there's some work to be done between now and then but in terms of leading uh this group of people and it's going to be a uh, we'll use the word diverse because it's going to be i think you know when it comes to employers it sounds like we've got a lot of different types of employers from western new york what's your strategy moving forward here uh, really, it's just to bring the panelists together to look at some key points from the book. Um, I love the way that the book is structured and looking at some key historical uh, elements and key historical time frames and really just get the panelists to open up about their personal feelings about those events, what's happening currently, and how it impacts what's happening in the workforce. What are the possibilities of a panel discussion? Let's look at that, right? You know, yeah, it sounds like <laughs> you got an idea what what you want to do and how to keep it moving. But what can we gain when it's a panel discussion? There's multiple people giving their their thoughts and perspectives. Well, I think because, number one, we're looking at workforce development, right? Um, So we got someone from Hodge and Russ, uh, Hodge and Russ, Mm -hmm. right? So that's a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, We have someone from National Fuel. Um, Of course, we have Stephanie and Rob. So we've got these different elements of workforce development and workforce period. But I think what's interesting is how do we all narrow it down, I guess, and go backwards, because that's what uh, Carol Anderson is able to do. How do we go backwards and look at the things that have happened and how they continue to impact, you know, workforce? What do we consider as professional? What does professional mean when you really start to think about it? I remember a few years ago, there was a CEO that came out like, hey, I'd love to hire more diverse staff, but they're just not qualified. Hmm. 
what does it mean to be qualified? And hopefully the panel can speak to that because it hasn't been my experience um, in the workforce in Buffalo that folks aren't qualified. It's that they're coming in with different cultural norms, different ways of interacting. And because of these longstanding traditional concepts of what it means to be a professional, they're being alienated, ostracized and moved out the door. Well, that's you touched upon some really interesting stuff there, Will. Let's switch back to, to Rob for just a second, though. When you like what you just heard Will saying right there, there is a divide then between what employers want, what they think they want, maybe using a better way of describing it, and what is really available in this market, or is there more development that's needed? There's, there's always going to be more development that's needed. I think what we're definitely emphasizing across the region is employer participation within the talent development pipeline. We're oftentimes focused on the entry-level roles, but as equal are the mid-level roles as well. And as you are expanding the talent sources and being more inclusive of groups that are currently underrepresented at your place of employment, you are building that bench larger for the potential next first-line supervisors and ideally future innovators in town. I think part of the benefit of the panel discussion we bring in that industry diversity, is you have industries like healthcare where there is a lot of representation and they're able to then educate employers in spaces where maybe there's less, like mm. manufacturing, on best practices they've seen. But even then, you know, manufacturing is able to share some of the best practices they have on talent development overall, on things like apprenticeship and the like that moves people up that pathway from being at that entry level role to some of those more higher level ones that honestly are the ones that we as a region need to be generating more of from that pipeline of existing workers as opposed to just having people land in those roles fresh out of high school. I want to step to uh, Stephanie because you're the reader of all of us here, of course. Uh, the book, White Rage, mm -hmm. by Carol Anderson. New York Times bestseller. Uh, it's got a, a spectacular title for sure. Mm -hmm. Yet the title, in some regards, could be considered misleading because, as I mentioned, I think before we went on the air, and when I think of white rage, I'm thinking of somebody who's you know, yelling at the cable news channel as they're watching uh, the news at, uh, at 10 o'clock at night or whatever the case may be. But there's more subtlety to, to it than, than just that. Absolutely. Um, so I think what's really important, I wanted to have this panel discussion because I wanted people to understand that you don't have to identify with the white rage to be able to see that it exists. Mm. So like we're all living in a system that was created by this rage to keep uh, black people specifically out of key positions, you know, uh, to limit education, to limit our workforce participation. And if we're not, like Will said, like looking at what's right now and moving backwards to understand how we got here, how do we unravel it? How do we create something that works better for everyone unless we understand where it actually came from? So, I mean, the, the title is definitely provocative, but mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I think having this discussion will help folks who um, would never read this book on their own. You know what I mean? Like this discussion, I think, is very accessible. Um, we're going to have a conversation with a group of people who come from different walks of life, but really want to see Buffalo win. And it's not we can't win unless we talk about the inequities in our community and what we're going to do. Because everyone has a responsibility. We're not looking to point fingers of who did what, who didn't do what. That doesn't matter anymore. We have some solutions that we think could work. Let's come together and all put our hands in and move things forward so our community is much more equitable. Let's maybe um, uh, let this broaden out and let everybody kind of chime in where they want to come in on this. 
you know, we can talk about what's in white rage and about some of the, the policy and or legislation that, that have been developed throughout the years that have kept people you know, separated, that have kept people down, for sure. What do we see here in West New York? Is there an understanding among employers that, you know, they're kind of what you were talking about a little bit there earlier, Will, about the idea that the perception of what a professional is is not really in tune with what an employer is needed, or an, an employer may need or what a, an employer could utilize. So I guess what I'm asking here is, is there an understanding among employers that, yeah, we're maybe getting people who don't fit a certain mold, but yet have so much to to offer? I mean, I want to see if we can kind of connect the dots, maybe make this a, more of a local discussion. Who wants to try to take that one in first? I mean, I'll start. I think we have a lot of employers. Um, so at SAS, we have our Modern Youth Apprenticeship Framework, um, CareerWise Greater Buffalo, that we launched in 2021. From what we're seeing, we have a lot of employers who they see, okay, yes, there's something that we can be doing differently. Like, we're not seeing the diversity that we want. It's a matter of capacity and understanding how to go about that. Um, so I think the sweet spot with our team at Say Yes, we're all from Buffalo Public Schools, all but maybe one or two of us on our entire team. We all live in a city, so we're very well equipped to kind of like build, bridge that gap between employers not really understanding how to connect with um, the kids graduating out of our district and our young people who want to work, you know, they want to do well for themselves, they want to take care of their families, they want to be thriving young adults, but haven't really figured out how to navigate, you know, their that career pathway just yet. We're right there in the middle to provide support on both ends. Um, and in our, 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 our apprenticeship framework, uh, we meet with our employer partners once a month. And it's not just us giving them best practices on how to work with our young people. They're also sharing what they're doing and what's working. So it's a really amazing space that we've created for employers to talk about doing things that are completely different than how they've been doing it in the years past. So you're talking about 18-year-olds who are getting hired for roles in, like, HR and, like, data analytics um, for with companies like M&T and Rich Products and, you know, Delaware North and Wegman. So it's really, it's an amazing opportunity for employers to say, okay, you know, we want to do something different. We want our, you know, we have talent needs, of course, everyone does, but we want to make sure that we're being a lot more inclusive. We want to tap into the talent that's local, and that's the way to do it. You heard her comments. Who wants to maybe add on to that a little bit? Yeah, I think the one thing that keeps coming up in the back of my mind is how nuanced the conversation is, and there's so many cracks and crevices to the conversation. I mean, creating those spaces where people can come together and talk about those nuances and share failures and successes is vital. Because mm -hmm. if we just talked about workforce development and organizational culture in itself is a massive topic to break down. And there are some organizations that have positive culture and they allow communication to flow from the bottom to the top. And there are some cultures that don't. When you mix in coming from a city that's segregated like mm -hmm. Buffalo, mm -hmm. right? How does segregation in communities impact changing the workforce or workplace diversity in an organization? You gotta have those conversations because you may have the want to and the desire to change it, but if you don't understand what it means to live in a community mm -hmm. where there are very few people who look different from you, mm -hmm. how will you deal with that in a workplace when emotions get involved? Mm -hmm. When policy gets involved, that is not quite where it should be mm -hmm. it for everyone if they look the same. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a super nuanced conversation, but it has to start with bringing all those people together and people being willing to be open and honest about who they are, addressing some bias, and being open to seeing things in a different light to allow opportunity for growth. Rob, what about you? What, as you're hearing the conversation here, what flashed in your mind? You know, the way that we've been talking about this recently is it's, it's a good problem that we're in in Buffalo and that we've really gone through a renaissance as far as opportunities here. And of course, there's the national landscape of a talent shortage everywhere, right? In Buffalo, though, we had generations of having more job candidates than openings. Right. It is a flipped landscape now. So a lot of this is helping to educate the local employers on the best practices for engaging talent that still needs to be developed to an extent. And you're doing things like being intentional about who the first-line supervisor is going to be, having training for that first-line supervisor on what it means to mentor a new hire, having standard operating procedures for what that person is going to be expected to do so that the talent and the supervisor are on the same page. It really is about removing the false negatives on both sides mm -hmm. that this isn't going to be a good match for us. So I think what I am really excited about when we talk about this work, you see a lot of really motivated, passionate young professionals who by engaging in this talent development and being intentional about it coming from diverse pipelines, they're developing a lot of leadership skills. They're going to be fantastic leaders for us in the next generation. It's um, encouraging to, to hear that for sure. What about on the other side, though? What What's stopping it? Because when you're talking about, okay, the first-line supervisor, you know, being intentional about who that person is, you know, how they look, where they come from, that's, that's interesting. But at the same time, not everybody's doing it, right? I mean, it sounds easy as we sit here and talk about <laughs> it, but we're, that's not what we see everywhere, right? Here in Western New York or obviously across the country. But what about that? Who wants to maybe talk about what, what, are, the, what are the obstacles right now? I mean, it's really you have to find the people who are willing to do it. So what we um, do at Say Yes, you know, we might be getting a yes from a CEO, but we need to get a yes from every level of leadership. So we mm -hmm. need yes from hiring managers. We need yes from HR directors. It has to be. You mean there's something going on in an organization <laughs> that a CEO might not know? <laughs> <laughs> no, just, you know, they get, ex you know, you might have a leader saying, yes, this is absolutely great. But like we need all the human beings who are going to be involved right. in the decision making, who are going to be involved in hiring and uh working with our young people to all be on the same board because um, it is a, it's, 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 an, it's a personal investment on your end to do things differently than how you've done it. And that's not easy for anyone, um, especially when we're having, you know, tough conversations around racial equity in our community um, and, you know, practices that may need to change. You know, every company has invested tons of money, tons of time into policies and procedures to make sure their business operates. But have they been developed with an 18-year-old in mind? No. Most right. most places, right. no. Right. So that's going to really be a shift in culture, a shift in, you know, practices. And, you know, we recognize that's a lot of work for employers. So it really has – you have to identify the people who want to take that on. Who wants to mentor an 18-year-old? And we say to our employers all the time, they're not just, you know, coming into the workforce, you know, fresh. They are transitioning into adulthood. It's, that's such a huge time for learning. Um, so it has to be the folks who really, you know, want to embrace that in order to, you know, bring in young talent, especially talent from underrepresented communities. Well, I saw you nodding your head uh, 
pretty profusely as mm -hmm. Stephanie was talking. If you have something to add, please. Yeah, I, uh, so at the end of the day, right, for most organizations and companies and businesses, there is a bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to navigate all these other things that are happening when you have to meet deadlines, mm -hmm. you have to produce, right? Mm -hmm. So you do need to have that, and I said organizational culture, you need that top-down organizational commitment to yep. change. They need to understand that if we are able to turn the corner on this change, our organization will be better off. Yep. One of the obstacles, well, actually a couple obstacles, is number one, if you have people thinking that it's just charity. Yes. We're just doing this just because we need to help these folks out. Right. Mm -hmm. It won't work. It won't work. You have to believe that we need these people to do better things that we want to do in our organization. Um, and the other issue is it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And it, it takes me back to the book and what I can appreciate, appreciate about how Carol Anderson has set this up is she goes through, she starts at reconstruction, which honestly, if you want to study race relations in America, you got to take a look at reconstruction because the question we need to ask is, well, civil war North one, Slavery should have been done. What happened? Didn't we go down into the South and eradicate plantations? Didn't we have black elected officials in mass? How did that turn into Jim Crow? Those are questions that have to be asked, right? So these are things that are baked into American culture, right? So if we want to do the hard work of deconstructing the ingredients, to figure out how we got there, we're going to have to be committed to it. Right. And going back to what I said about businesses have a bottom line, when you have to measure and weigh bottom line and helping this person get into here, it becomes that challenge of, eh, I, I got to do this. And it becomes easier to focus on the bottom line as opposed to focusing on changing the way we do business. Mm -hmm. And once again, if you don't believe that you're bringing people in in a diverse capacity to do better in the business, why would you hang on to it? Right. So that that's the difficulty in it. And Stephanie's completely correct because you got to have that top-down agreement in an organization from CEO down to entry-level worker. Mm -hmm. Now, I ask this question, how many organizations do you know exist like that? <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for not making me <laughs> That was Stephanie Pete, Will Green, and Rob Latest in conversation with Jay Moran. And we close today's What's Next with a portion of the White Rage panel discussion presented by Say Yes Buffalo and featuring Stephanie Pete and Rob Latest as panelists, along with Akua Men's I Do, Hugh Russ, Anika Samuels and Samuel Vaughn with Will Green moderating. The title of the book, White Rage, um, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. This book is, it takes you on a journey through history. Uh, the interesting thing is, in order to get to contemporary meaning and context, she talks about key points throughout history that have gotten us here. I think one of the most interesting points too, and I, I make this statement often, is like if you erase slavery and you look at the history of African Americans and slavery and what happened after slavery, it's just as atrocious. 
it's just as atrocious. And she actually starts with reconstruction. She starts with reconstruction. Um, being an educator, I understand the value of education, but I also understand the value of history. I don't think we get to a contemporary understanding without knowledge of what has happened previously, and we use that knowledge to forge a way forward. So what I like to do is I'll start with a quotation from the book, and then I'll open it up to our panelists just to share their ideas about that, okay? All right. Um, so, and, and Stephanie said, this is a provocative title, White Rage, right? Um, and of course, I think some people are gonna shy away from that. And I know when I think of rage, I think of something physical. I think of the Incredible Hulk tearing up a city, right? But what Carol Anderson is able to do is to disarm you a bit and not talk about the physical manifestation of white rage, but the insidious plots to perpetuate and enact white rage and get the results just through pin strokes. So there's no knocking over buildings, um, nothing like that. It is carefully coordinated and planned. All right, so first quotation, she talks about it. White rage is not about visible violence, but rather it works its ways through the courts, the legislators, and a range of government bureaucracies. It wreaks havoc subtly, almost imperceptibly, too imperceptibly, certainly, for a nation consistently drawn to the spectacular to what it can see. It's not the Klan. White rage doesn't have to wear sheets, burn crosses, or take to the streets. Working the halls of power, it can achieve its ends far more effectively, far more destructively. So what I like to do is open it up to the panel and just ask you to sh you know, share your thoughts on this notion that is given to us about white rage from Carol Anderson. What, what does that make you think about where we stand here today? I can go first at the end here. Uh, I think, and I wrote it in the, in the intro of the book, the echo of the rage. And I think that's, that's sort of what I hear um, when Will talks about it in this way and certainly how Carol wrote it is, you have this echo that's ongoing, this rage echo, and it gets louder and louder and louder and louder. And it, almost like any echo in an echo chamber, it becomes sort of encompassing around it. And what its intention is, is to keep being louder and louder and louder and louder to create the space to be even more rageful mm. and rageful and rageful. So that, that would be my, my piece. So for me, I think of how when you're talking about violence or an act of rage, that's in one place, right? One place, set time, it has a start and a finish. What she explains is how actually through laws and policies and behavior, they're able to interlock all of this rage through all these systems to create literally like a net to keep black people from progressing. So she talks about you know uh, reconstruction, she talks about education, she talks about uh, civil rights. So when you think about all the institutions in our country, um, by doing it that way, it's a lot more, it's, lot, it's quieter of course, but now there's a net, literally, that is keeping people from being able to navigate um, life, whether professionally, educationally, personally. So that, that was my impression as well, and that's what struck me about the book. You suggested that I read it, I read it, it blew me away. And I, what I told you was, um, I, you know, I think I'm fairly well-educated and I think I, I pay attention to what's going on in society, and I think I have a pretty good sense of history. And then I read this book, 
and I had no clue. Um, what really struck me is the um, completely systemic, organized um, manner, series of programs, uh, highly orchestrated uh, positions um, that, that underlie or that arise from white rage. This isn't one guy or several people shouting in the wilderness and trying to encourage people to have a backlash. Um, this is an organized, systematic, procedural, um, almost like a shadow government um, uh, process that's ongoing. Yeah, we got the name of the title from you. You, you described it as an organized resistance to black progress. Mm. If I don't know if you remember that, but you did. <laughs> of course I remember. <laughs> you know, I think what was challenging for me with this book was that it was specifically, this rage is occurring specifically because of black ambition, black progress. You know, I think that was hard for me to um, come to grips with, that it was really a response to you know, that little bit of progress black people received, right? That little bit of ambition that black people finally have, you know, that it was a direct response to that. I, I would also add um, to that point, I, I remember a quote in the book that said, black ambition is the white man's boogeyman. Um, and that was something that really stuck with me throughout the, the rest of that book. Um, and that was just because, you know, there's a lot of conversations that I'll have with my white counterparts. And when we're talking about racism, I think there's a lot of thoughts around, oh, it must be an individual, you know, uh, individual level thing, right? So this person is a bad person. Um, and that's, that's what racism is, when the reality is this book goes all the way back to talk about the systems, the systems and how um, influential racism is in all of these different systems. Um, coming from a healthcare background, you see it play out in healthcare. Um, different governors that were calling racism as a public health threat, and that's because um, you know, throughout all the different conditions, social determinants of health, you start to realize in every single one of these mm -hmm. systems, you know, racism plays a part, and, and that really undermines the progress of black people in general. So I think for me, when I, when I read that, like the white man's boogeyman, it was just like, oh wow, like this is something that's been perpetuated over time, um, and it continues to be. And just following up off of that, just you know, the white man's boogeyman, um, there's, I think, a perpetuation that if we have things more equitably, white people get less, mm -hmm. which isn't mm -hmm. the case at all. Mm -hmm. So I think her using the, the metaphor of a boogeyman, which isn't real, yeah. right, really yeah. speaks to that. Yeah, yeah and, and looking at it today, too, the, the, the lack of support of enacting policies that were passed at a federal and even at the state level has really led to the calcification of the isolation index in communities like ours and everywhere. Mm. And it really comes down to two aspects of it. It's geographic mobility and economic mobility. Um, I love the statement about how it, th this is not a zero-sum game mm -hmm. as far as allowing folks to have geographic and economic mobility. Um, more so now than ever with a talent shortage, and I know we'll talk about that um, in a bit here, but the ability to allow folks to attain their generational wealth then benefits us moving forward, and right now we're preventing that positive feedback loop for what is becoming a majority of our population. All right, so I, I'm hearing 
a number of things, but there are definitely things that you all touched on, and I think there's a common theme here. Uh, Sam talked about the echo, which is mentioned in the book, and that reverberating ideology throughout history. It started with this significant moment, and it just reverberates, which contributes to that net. Um, Hugh, you talked about this orchestrated uh, attack. I, and I think what's interesting, what Hugh made me think about, and we've talked about this a few times in preparation uh, for this program, is that uh, my first professional position out of undergrad was as a teacher. And, you know, I was so blessed to have excellent African-American veteran teachers who came from so many different places and knew so much about history and encouraged me to learn the history. And it was almost a clandestine uh, group, almost, I guess, a modern-day underground railroad where I learned this information that is specifically spoken to in this book, specifically the histories that you're saying you're being, are being revealed to you, I was taught this by black educators and it was almost as if we knew to speak about it in hushed terms. We didn't talk about it out loud in front of everyone else because you could get labeled as the things you get labeled when they wanna push you out. But it certainly showed up in the way that I taught my classes. It certainly showed up in the way that I encouraged you to overcome these systems of oppression. So I think it's extremely interesting, and at some, and sometimes it is good to see that other folks are now getting access to this information. I am standing on a stage talking about these concepts. No longer do I have to say, oh, well, we won't talk about that too loud. We are actually having a conversation, but I think it's important that what you take away from here is that you go home and start to do the work. If you haven't read the book, you should read the book. That will encourage you to read other books. Um, well, sorry to interrupt. Yes. That's what I do for a living. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you're supposed to say something like, I object, yeah. or something like that, right? <laughs> you used the word that Stephanie opened her remarks with, provocative. And what I'm hearing you say now is that when you began your career as a teacher, you, you know, you said a clandestine operation. You were maybe afraid to be provocative. And um, Stephanie, you were kind of apologetic about maybe being provocative. We're supposed to be provocative. <laughs> That's the only way we're going to get anything done. Um, th the thing that really, I don't know, bothers me more than anything now is the um, efforts to, to limit or to outlaw uh, education um, regarding black history, slavery, et cetera. And um, my little bookmark here, I, I got from a different article, not from this book, but I used it as my bookmark. And it's, one can tell a great deal about a country by what it chooses to remember. One can tell even more by what a nation chooses to forget. And I think we ought to be provocative and loud and tell the story and point out that it still exists. Um, otherwise, we're lost. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the goal is to make it so it's not provocative. The goal is to make it so we have these conversations and there are no extra heart palpitations that doesn't become a hush or a whisper. We're literally sitting in the middle of Mother's Restaurant talking about these things fervently, 
you know, banging on the table and having a conversation and no one gets afraid and calls the police. <laughs> it's a normal commonplace thing. Um, I certainly appreciate that, but I, I do think that this next quotation connects to what you mentioned because it is something that is innate. And I, you know, uh, <laughs> Sister Thimby is in the crowd today and I met Thimby when she first came to Buffalo. Um, and one of the things we talked about was she was like, what, how come people aren't saying things about it? And I've heard this from other people who are black who come to Buffalo. And they're like, man, how do you put up with that every day? And sometimes I'm like, what? Like, you didn't hear how they were talking to you? You didn't see? And you just kind of fall in line. And that's what the legislation does. It gets you to fall in line. And we're talking hundreds of years. But the reason why we learn to fall in line is because of the impact, because of the consequences. And I think this speaks to it here. Um, the trigger for white rage is black advancement, the boogeyman. <laughs> it is not the mere presence of black people that is the problem. Rather, it is blackness with ambition, with drive, with purpose, with aspirations, and with demands for full and equal citizenship. It is blackness that refuses to accept subjugation, to give up. A formidable array of policy assaults and legal contortions have consistently punished black resilience, and black resolve. Now, I'll open that up, and we, we, we touched on that a little bit through your previous comments. What else can you add to that point about the need to stifle advancement or the need to say, well, you're a little too uppity? <laughs> what, what, what can we say about that? And think about it in a, a contemporary way. Well, I think, it, to me, it brings me back to provocative, which um, I think is important here. So from, from my perspective, I think it's, it's, it really shouldn't be provocative um, as a clinician to sit up here and say that the, the mental health system has a lot of work to do is not a provocative statement, it's a fact. And that, that social net that we're talking about here is often institutionally funded, supported, policed, and allowed to exist simply by not acknowledging it. And so I think from a, from a clinician standpoint or an ethical standpoint, that's doing more harm than good by not. Um, and I don't think it's provocative for your doctor to tell you that you have an illness or a system that's killing you. I think that's the truth. That quote makes me think of the late comedian Paul Mooney. Um, I saw in a clip he had said white people didn't mind black folks living near them or in their house when they own them, mm. but they don't want them buying a house in their neighborhood. So it's, blackness is accepted if it's within the bounds of what white people want for us or what white people think we should have or what we can do, and anything outside of that is met with resistance. You know, I, th I think oftentimes the, th that mentality came from people that looked like me at my age, right? So theoretically, I am still advancing in my career, I am still trying to accumulate assets, and they saw that as competition, right? That eliminates the ability to participate in a network that you can support and can support you. It is a short-term mentality for a gain over the next six months at the expense of a long-term gain across a career that can help you to be part of a network of folks that support you at work, but then also can be your neighbors, the ones that you're 
leaning on for things like childcare that so often are based on community now. So I, it is all about trying to allow yourself to celebrate the success of others as opposed to seeing it as being competitive um, with your goals. You know, Rob, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, imagine what our region would look like if everyone had an opportunity to succeed. Imagine, you know, we wouldn't have east side, west side, like imagine if everyone had that opportunity to progress at the same rate, right? That imagine if our schools had the same opportunity. You know, I mean, so many of us, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this, he knows this, right? We, we lived in the city until our children became of school age. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, oh, time to move. You know, but imagine if I didn't have to move. Imagine if my children had the opportunity to go to any school in the city of Buffalo and progress and have teachers that would encourage them and believe in them, right? Im imagine what that would look like for all of us, not just black people, right? <laughs> but all, all of us. And so that's, you know, the reason why I believe in Say Yes Buffalo is because you know, I think it's an opportunity for our entire region. And, and I know I'm uh, new to Buffalo. You know, I've, I've been here 20 years, so I came Buffalo. You know, but, you know, I definitely see the difference, right? I grew up half of my life probably in the Bronx. And, you know, I remember the first time we lived at the corner of um, Kensington and Harlem. And um, I was in that Topps supermarket. And there were white people there with Confederate flags. And I couldn't believe it. I said, if no one could ever do that in the Bronx. <laughs> like, you, you wouldn't dare do that, you know? So, you know, there is, I, I just think this is an opportunity for us to all grow together. So there are some in this room who would say 20 years, you're still new to Buffalo. Oh, no way, um, you. <laughs> um, I think the really insidious nature of, of white rage, as we're calling it, is not that um, white people want to harm black people or to hinder black people. It's more like, let's just keep them in their place. And um, I, I heard a story yesterday I saw Marcus is here. I don't know if other people from Buffalo Prep are here, but I heard a story about Buffalo Prep um, yesterday that it's sort of the other side of it, but it's it's the same. It's the same phenomenon, and and that is Buffalo Prep had a a, a, a white donor who wanted to make a big gift, and um, he expressly said, um, you know, I want to give money. This is for the good ones. Um, and I think it's the same phenomenon. Only the good ones, allow only the good ones to succeed, keep everyone else in their place. Um, and um, I don't know, I, you say it, it shouldn't be a zero-sum game. I, I, I agree it shouldn't be, but that's how people think it is. If my kid gets the spot, in, if your kid gets the spot in college, that means my kid doesn't. There's so many spots. There are enough spots there for are everyone. There are enough spots for all of us. <laughs> yeah. 
I think, and, and when you mentioned um, that that was a harmful, I saw some people in the crowd saying, oh, that is harmful though, right? In terms of um, the subjugation of, of a person. And so keeping you in your place is reminding you that you don't, you don't belong here, right? And what does that do to a person? You, mm. you internalize that over a long period of time. And so, you know, um, when you mentioned Thembi and, and saying like, oh my gosh, people don't recognize this is happening. Like that's, that's the system working, right? Yes. You're internalizing that and you're, everything that you're doing afterwards is coming from that point of reference. And so I think even as a black person, there's a lot of work that you have to do yes. to unbundle that and to, to get from underneath that um, over a long period of time because you are in a system in that system. says this is where you should be. Mm -hmm. No, you can't go over here, you can't do that. And I, I can tell you, there's a lot of times in my own career where that has been the case, right? We're always reminded of that and those are the conversations that we have with one another. Hey, mm -hmm. did you experience that? You know, you saw what I just went through. Did you experience that? Probably not in the same way that I have. Um, and so we have to come together as a person, you know, to, to say, how do we get from underneath that? And so, you know, I think from that standpoint, it is harmful because it's something that always reminds you, you don't belong here. This is not meant for you. You can't go there. You can't do this, you know, and we teach our kids that mm -hmm. because the system is, you know, it creates fear for white people and in that fear comes violence. Hmm. Yeah, I'm reminded of the two quotes we've already read and the conversations now about the Tulsa race massacre. Like we all know mm. that they were bombed, right? And driven out of town. So that's the physical violence, right? That's the subjugation. Mm. But when we're talking about being able to control policy and systems, those black business owners are also denied their insurance policies. Mm. So they couldn't even recuperate any money on the back end. So when you talk about, you know, subjugation and violence and policy, I mean, that was a perfect storm. And I think an example of um, obviously the rage that we're all familiar with when we can see it, but also how they work behind the scenes um, to, you know, to promote that net. And it's the work behind the scenes that allows for the more egregious manifestations of it, right? Um, I think it is fear-based. Somebody mentioned fear-based. But it's the work behind the scenes that allows um, folks to, when they need to keep black people in place, they can do it without impunity. They can act without, any, they, they, you know, I can do it and get away with it. Um, I think it's something to certainly further explore about the fear, the fear that drives more fear um, and why. I think for the context of this conversation, though, I guess one of the, one of the things I want to ask you here, I go going off script. <laughs> one of the things I want to ask you, though, is what is, because, Okay, we, we can take a humanist approach and say, hey, yeah, black people should be okay to live their lives and they should have thriving communities and they should be free from harm and people coming into their communities and doing damage and murdering people. Like, yeah, we should do that. But what about the context of the United States as a nation, right? What about the context of Buffalo as a city? Um, what does it mean that we have not had an opportunity to see a black community that fully thrives, not just for itself, but for the larger city of Buffalo. What, what are we missing out on? And in terms of what could we attain, but what do you think we miss? Well, locally, we're missing out on a billion dollars of money circulating through our community. If we were to close a racial and equity gap economically, that would be an extra billion dollars circulating through our community. Well, make it plain, Stephanie. Thank yeah. you. I, I feel really strongly <laughs> about this topic because um, I just think there's so much potential 
in Buffalo, right? When, you know, when we think about, um, imagine if we had, right, like my, my kids have never had a teacher of color their entire education, um, I, I would want that for them. I would want them to be able s to see teachers who looked like them. But even more importantly, I would like their white friends to right. see <laughs> black right. teachers, brown teachers. You know, that has an impact on how you view life, <laughs> the sort of experience, who you respect, right? The biases that you have. You know, if you've never encountered brilliance mm -hmm. that wasn't white. That, that does a lot to the psyche mm -hmm. of a whole generation of, of people coming up. And so, and, and you know, and when I think about even that expectation, right, that, you know, when you're, when you're growing up, um, there's something to be said about who believes in you, who thinks that you're brilliant, who thinks that you're talented, and that's coming from their teachers. How many people in here can say, oh, that teacher, you know, changed my life? And so, you know, I think that's just one area, right? And so many of us are struggling with, we need more people, we have open jobs, not enough people, right, <laughs> to, to Stephanie's point. So there's, there's so many, there's so many opportunities that we could be growing um, our region. I also think you, you touched on um, the brilliance and almost from a standpoint of like exceptionalism, right? And so we have this idea where this black person who has success, you know, who's made it to this point of their career or, you know, they're the first in some type of role, they're just the one of few, right? And, and so when Will mentions like having this community and this representation of um, black people who are succeeding and that being the norm, that's not a conversation that we're currently having, right? Like it's always this exceptionalism. So, okay, Stephanie, you made it over here, but you're one of the good ones, right? And so now we have this perception that most of them are bad. Most of them can't succeed. Most of them are, you know, down here, but now we see a few, you know, black girl magic, right? Like the magic <laughs> in which we, we are. And so I think at the end of the day, it's important to see that perpetuated. It's important to see that um, inflection point of success because it isn't, uncommon, right? This happens all the time. But now when we make this, you know, big case about one person doing something, it looks like the rest of the community doesn't and is lacking. I have a side comment based off what you said, the black excep exceptionalism. That's kind of my beef with Black History Month and the posts that mm. I see companies making. It's always like, let's celebrate the contributions of like great African Americans. It's also, it like lends itself to the right. pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. We're talking mm -hmm. about yeah. folks who have done great work, but we're not talking about what kept others from doing right. the same right. great work. Right. You know, why don't we have as many stories about African-American mm -hmm. people um, doing beautiful things in our community? But you know, it's just, it's a trigger for me. You know, the, the posts that we see, they're not really talking about uh, systemic racism. It's more like, let's, you know, here's a couple of examples of black folks who've done great things and let's honor them. And, that's, and it's such an incomplete conversation. And why are you complaining? because they were they able did to do it. it. Right. Why can't you? You know, why can't you? And so the, the commonality in that is you, if that person could do it, you couldn't. But they don't talk about what it took to get there or the sacrifice that it right. took for that person to. to well, that's the whole myth of the American dream. You yeah. know, no one wants to admit, I don't want to admit that I got where I am because I was fortunate or I had a boost, I call mm -hmm. it. Um, everyone pulls himself up by his own bootstraps and uh, the harder he works, the better he does, and it's just hard work and you'll succeed. Um, 
It's just not true. Hmm. Um, what I wanted to say, though, what, what strikes me about that quotation is that um, I think those of you who know me know I'm not a big technology guy, and I, I, I don't really appreciate technology. So there's my, there's my uh, confession. But we, we live in a society that worships data and wants to measure everything. And um, one of the problems uh, justice initiatives have, uh, have encountered over the years is that um, the claim is, oh, you can't, you, can't measure it. you can't really measure this stuff. Well, we can measure it. I mean, look at the last blizzard. 47 people died, most on the east side. Um, Henry Lewis Taylor at UB in the 19, early 1990s published a study about the disparity between um, white and black families uh, in, in Buffalo. He redid it in 2022 or 23, and nothing had changed. Um, so we, we can measure this stuff mm -hmm. and satisfy the people that need to have things measured and count data and whatever. Um, it's just, it's really frustrating. But I, Will, to answer your, your question, what would it look like? You know, again, from a healthcare perspective, employment is assumed if you're healthy, if you're not being harmed, if your emotional well-being isn't being harmed on a regular, consistent, every hour by every second basis. And so getting to employment is important, but what happens before that is even more important. And, and it reminds me of the, the quote that Thurgood Marshall made in 1973 in the United States versus Rodriguez, which is, you know, our, our students of color are coming out of these schools without understanding what it means to be a good citizen. And so how are you gonna get a job if you don't know what the tools are? Or if the tools are hidden? Or better yet, if the tools are locked behind a box and if you get near them, they move the box further away. And so I think in the city, you know, there's, there's stark examples of this. Crack cocaine has been going on in the city of Buffalo for years. And the response was more police. And then when we started to see fentanyl in the white communities, the response was more methadone clinics. That's less than five years ago. And opioid judges and courts and, you know. And so employment is, is after that. <laughs> Health is before that. And so what would this community look like? Far less harm. Far less kids ending their lives before they even begin to see what their life could look like. Before, yeah. before we go on to the next one. Mm -hmm. Before we go to the next topic, I think to answer your question, I don't know where I read this from, but... Um, if we were fully realized, we would not be able to predict someone's life outcome by what they look like and where they live. Right exactly. now, we can, hmm. unfortunately. Life expectancy yeah. by yeah. zip code, um, yeah. the network gap mm -hmm. in terms of success, you can look at zip code data to see that right. for sure. We were <laughs> in your meeting, Akua, this week when I learned for the first time that the um, number one cause of death for black boys between five to 25 was suicide. Yep. And oh, you probably knew this, right? <laughs> and that was, you know, I have two black boys, right? So I, I care. I care about my sons. And, you know, I think about the weathering. I think about that impact that they don't even, I mean, unfortunately, you know, my, you know, my coworkers here, they, they have to hear every time somebody calls my son the N-word, and I think I'm going to quit and leave, <laughs> you know, because I can't believe that this is happening 
to our children in 2024 mm -hmm. in Buffalo, New York. This we, we can't. Hmm. This can't be the case. So so much there. I always wish we had more time um, to really dive into the conversation. I think we're doing a great job. Uh, some of the things that I heard is the boost that Hugh uh, referenced to. And I think, or, or spoke to, and I think that's the thing about, you know, white rage in the context of the book. If you hide the elements of the boost, then how can you acknowledge that you received one? And it works inversely for back black people, you know, and it speaks to the suicide numbers. What's wrong with me that I can't achieve success in this society? And if I don't know the history, I will internalize these things. And we're seeing that being played out. Your comment about black teachers, uh, study years ago, students of all colors and races acknowledge that the best experiences they have in classrooms is with black teachers. That's data, <laughs> as reported, and not just black students, white students, students of other colors and races. Um, the notion about black history and the information is incomplete. I did a talk the other day um, at ECC and talked about Harriet Tubman. Everybody knows who Harriet Tubman is. But when you go into the details, Harriet Tubman was the first, led the first organized black ops, uh, you know, activity, free 700 slaves in one night, working with the army. She was one of the leaders when women couldn't even be in the army. Like, if we tell the full story of people, then I think we get a better picture of what they were able to overcome. Um, and then also tell those stories of people who are nameless, whose stories got buried even here. And that will do it for Producers Picks. We'd like to thank our guests, Stephanie Pete, Will Green, and Rob Latest, as well as the other panelists from the Say Yes Buffalo White Rage event. If you missed anything or you'd like to hear it again, you can get this program as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on the Amplify BTPM app. Each episode is also online at wbfo.org. I'm Patrick Hoskin. Thanks for listening. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of February 26th to March 3rd. I'm your host, Abby Mylock. Grace Celia Taylor became the first African-American student to win a Jesse Ketchum Medal. This medal honors the legacy of Jesse Ketchum, a notable figure in Buffalo history, who is credited with donating land and buildings to establish the first teacher training center in Buffalo. This took place in Western New York on February 26, 1884. Bars are always a fun place to unwind with some friends after a long week. In 1974, there were 1,467 bars counted in Buffalo. Wow, a variety of options in our very own Buffalo. Looks like we'll have to try them all out. The grand opening of Lafayette Theater was on February 27, 1922. In 1962, sadly, the building was sold and demolished to provide surface parking for tenants of an office tower. 
You've been listening to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Abby Mylock.